and he's the creator and host of the Takeout Podcast. Major, good afternoon. Thanks for being with us. Great to be with you, John. How are you? Man, I'm good. I just returned from your hometown, San Diego. I spent four days in San Diego. I I love it. I love the military history. I love the patriotism. It's got to be one of the most patriotic towns. What do you tell people makes San Diego so special? Well, unlike San Francisco and Los Angeles, San Diego is livable, manageable, and enjoyable. There are parts of L.A. and San Francisco that are a delight, but they are both a highly urbanized, burdened cities right now. L.A. is racked with traffic even on its best days. San Francisco has a, it would even concede, a massive problem with homelessness and street crime. San Diego has a small problem with homelessness, but all the other livability index items in San Diego, accepting cost of living for housing, that's a huge problem throughout California, are really manageable in San Diego. So it's a livable place. It's also a very mellow place. Uh, It has a kind of I don't want to say manana rhythm to it, but it is a very mellow place. When I get off the plane from coming back from D.C. to my hometown, John, I have to downshift about three gears right away. (laughs) I mean, I just have to downshift radically, which is why I love coming home. Uh, The other great thing about San Diego, not, not only the weather, that's obvious, everyone knows that, but it is just the kind of place that, unlike Los Angeles, I want to get cross town. Well, you better plan for three hours. No, you can get cross town. Most days under most conditions in less than 20 or 35 minutes max. So it's a place that is accessible across all of its really great attractions. And it's still small enough that it can be that way. And look, everyone loves their hometown. I was quite fortunate. Uh, The great fortune of my life is to grow up in something approximating paradise. And it's still got a lot of those charms that I grew up with. Um, all right, we've recorded that, right? We're going to send this to the San Diego Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> oh, oh, they know. They Major's going to get a royalty check. <laughs> hey, I want to ask you about something that's going to be happening in Atlanta, and that is the president, former president, excuse me, being arraigned. It's obvious that it's going to be different because cameras are going to be there. My question is, how do cameras change the process besides the fact that we can see everything? Take us inside the dynamic of cameras in the courtroom? Well, cameras in the courtroom help us understand what the process of justice actually looks like. And when we see it, we are riveted by it because it is, in its own way, a small-scale civics lesson. How do rules of evidence matter? How are they applied? What does an objection look like? What, it, it, lo- it looks different than the movies, okay? It's actually playing out. And also, when we see the culmination, the jury come in, there is genuine human drama. There won't be any of that in an arraignment. And when the sentencing comes, you see the entire arc of the justice system, meaning someone committed an offense. There was an indictment brought by the state. Everyone had a chance through an adversarial process to lay out their evidence and counter it and question it and scrutinize it. And then a jury got to make a decision about that. All of that is visible in ways that in the federal court system, none of it is visible. Supreme Court, none of it's visible, only audio. Federal court's not even that in most cases. So the visibility adds to, I think, the, if not trustworthiness, the way that society can judge for itself its level of satisfaction. The most famous, most famous by far example of this in our history is the O.J. Simpson case, 
where people came to different conclusions about what they actually saw and what should or should not have happened. But at the end of it, no one can say, well, I didn't get a chance to see that. Everyone got a chance to see it in all of its strengths, all of its weaknesses. You can tell if someone's playing for the cameras. Plenty of lawyers and cops will tell you they don't like it because they think it alters the way a courtroom works because people play for a broader audience. But guess what? The broader audience doesn't matter. All that matters is the jury and the judge. And to see that interplay helps people understand in cases that are really important what they can think of it on their own. Well, I guess, Major, it's it's not going to be that much of a spectacle if none of the defendants are there, right? I mean, (laughs) that takes away some sizzle. This will be be kind of boring. This will be kind of boring. But in general, John's question was, in the larger construct of things, how does this this work? Um, This will be, quote-unquote, boring. Now, I would never be the one to tell you that any arraignment of any former president on any felony charge is boring. But this will be, in the grand scheme of things, less interesting than other things. And if Ken Cheeseboro's trial goes through as scheduled, it will be the first go-round of this evidentiary and adversarial process. And the country will get, and let's be clear, the other defendants, lawyers, will get a very clear insight into the dimensions and the strength or comparative weakness, depends on your point of view, we'll see, of the prosecution's case. All of that can be instructive to the larger civic understanding of what's going on. And what's going on, as I've said before, with you, John, is terrain we have never walked before as a country. We just, uh, I'm telling you, this fall and going into next year, the actual trial procedure of a former president who is also running for the nomination of his party and is the undisputed frontrunner for that, the collision of those two things will be unlike anything we have experienced, witnessed, or processed in our entire history. Hey, Major, we've only got two minutes, but I wanted to ask you, could the 14th Amendment keep Donald Trump off the ballot in 2024? So I'm not a lawyer, and I'm not a constitutional lawyer. Those two things have to be said. I have done a fair amount of reading on this, and it appears that it will have to be something if someone sues on this basis, okay? If someone sues a secretary of state in any jurisdiction and says, I don't believe, based on the actions of the former president, that he should be on the ballot, that that will at minimum have to be something that a secretary of state will have to consider. And I've talked to a couple of secretaries of state who are bracing for a legal challenge about this. And they're talking to themselves. Secretaries of states are. What is the law? What is the applicability of it? What do we think we should do? What jurisdiction will handle this? Will it go to a federal court, district, and then appeals court, then all the way to the Supreme Court? Actually, nobody knows. But people in this space, much smarter than I, charter members of the Federalist Society, and in some cases, legal scholars that the Federalist Society considers among the best constitutionalists in our country, have said, yes, the 14th Amendment, Section 3 thereof, can apply, should apply, and may be used to keep former President Trump off the ballot. Will that happen? We're not a million, but we're several miles away from that. But it is not an illegitimate issue or question. So it'd be handled on a state-by-state basis? Well, I think that's, again, when I said a moment ago, we don't know where we're going. 
This is one of the things. When I've t- I talked to two different secretaries of state about this, one a Republican and one a Democrat, and they're both like, I don't know. But they expect to be sued, someone to come to them and say, you cannot have former President Trump on the ballot on the basis of the 14th Amendment, specifically Section 3. And they're wondering, okay, do I make that decision? If I make that decision, does someone countersue me? And if so, what jurisdiction decides if I've applied the law correctly? Is it my state court or is it the federal court? When I say we don't know the answer because we've never been here before, I really mean it. Major Garrett is CBS's chief Washington correspondent. Always great perspective. Thank you so much, Major. Thanks, John. Talk to you next week. It is 356 at WTMJ.